You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Welcome back to Curator's Corner. We're talking today, in hopefully a very frank and candid way, about race in the intelligence field. And the four panelists that we have are people that rose from the bottom to the very top of their perspective fields. And so they have a lot to talk about, a lot to tell us about how they saw the relationship between their race and their peers' race and the broader intelligence community. So let me introduce them to you now. Daryl Blocker is our, our space friend. Um, he spent the last three plus decades working in the national security and intelligence field, most of with that CIA. As a career operations officer, he spent time as chief of station or deputy chief of station in several capacities and was a chief of base in a war zone. From 2010 to 2013, he was the deputy chief and then chief of the interagency training center, which we all know as a different name. Daryl may or may not be able to call it the farm, but we can. In 2013, he was made the deputy director of the counterterrorism center. And then in 2014, the chief of the Africa division at CIA. At his retirement in 2018, he was the most senior black officer in the directorate of operations. We're also joined by Cassie Chandler, who spent nearly 24 years managing, directing, and leading criminal terrorism and foreign intelligence activities at the FBI. She was the first black female special agent to rise to the ranks of the position of assistant director. She led the FBI Academy at Quantico, where she was responsible for redefining the Bureau's training from a criminal investigative focus to one with an enhanced focus on terrorism and intelligence. She served as section chief of the Criminal and Domestic Terrorism Council and was special agent in charge of the FBI's Norfolk field office, where she had oversight for criminal terrorism and counterintelligence initiatives. She was also the FBI's first female national spokesperson and assistant director of public affairs. We're also joined by Mel Gamble, a 40-year retired senior intelligence officer. He served in a number of senior executive positions in the Directorate of Operations in the Central Intelligence Agency to include Chief and Deputy Chief of Station in Africa and Latin America, Chief of Central Asia in the Caucasus, to the Associate Deputy Director of Operations, Deputy Chief of European Division, and Chief of Africa Division. And then Malcolm Nance, who's a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer for the U.S. Government Special Operations, Homeland Security, and Intelligence Agencies, with over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism. 
an honorably retired U.S. Navy Arabic-speaking intelligence collections operator, field interrogator, survival evasion resistance escape specialist, and founder of the Advanced Terrorism Abduction Hospital Survival School. He spent more than two decades on clandestine anti-terrorism and counterterrorism intelligence operations in the Middle East, North Africa, the Balkans, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa in direct support of the special operations and intelligence community. Thank you all. You can see at home we have an extraordinary panel to talk to you today. The way this format is going to work is to, to kind of herd cats a little bit. I will bring up topics and I will direct the first question at a specific person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only person that I want to hear from or we want to hear from. So even though the first question will go to Mel, this is a question for the group unless it's really specific. So let me start with you, Mel. You, you're the and not, you know, to age you dramatically, you're, you're, you're barely older than me, so let's call it that. <laughs> School and college student. It's not like it is today where there are certainly opportunities that were not there for black Americans and minority Americans to go into the intelligence field. Did you have guidance to lead you in this direction? Did, were there people who said, you know what, you could be an intelligence officer someday? Or was it something that you just had to figure out on your own? It's probably an unfair question for me, but I'll 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 answer it anyway. Um, when I when I was in college, uh, I started in college. I was at Howard University, and um, but my father worked for the agency, so I'm a legacy uh, legacy mm -hmm. officer uh, in that sense. And but like every parent, uh, they want you to sort of follow in their footsteps. Well. I knew very little about the CIA because my father didn't talk about it. As a matter of fact, I didn't learn that he even worked there until I was about 15 or 16. And he didn't tell me. It was actually uh, uh, one, one of my fellow students in high school who had told me, uh, he said, hey, I understand your dad works with my dad. And I said, where does your dad work? I said, my dad just works for the government because that was what my father always said. Uh, but it, uh, he said, oh, no, he's the head of security at the CIA. And so I don't think he was supposed to tell me that. But then I asked my dad, and my dad kind of looked at me, and uh, he didn't say anything. But he, he eventually he said, yeah, that's where I work, but don't tell anybody. Uh, so I had the fortune of, um, I was fortunate to uh at that time, uh, the kids of agency people could work uh, during the summer or do internships uh, right. at, uh, at the agency. So when I was in college, I, I started to work there. And um, but again, I uh, I guess like Cassie, I was uh, going to I was very much I had it all planned out. I was going to go to college, go to law school, uh, become a lawyer. Uh, actually uh, practice law and then become a senator from Virginia. I had it all planned out. Uh, nice. But then, but then um, I, just to make the, to shorten this, um, when I finished college, my uh, father, I mean, uh, one of the senior people in the agency had watched me develop over this time and he, he convinced me to take the test as he said, to uh, to uh, join the agency, I tried to put him off because I was focused on. I had gotten accepted to GW Law School, and um, I said, "No, I'm going to I'm going to law school." 
he said, just take the test. Well, that opened the door. I took the test. They said, you know, we'd like for you to join. So I thought, okay, I'll try for a year. If I don't like it, I can go the next year to law school and everybody's happy. Uh, well, 40 years later, that's Cassie, let me let me ask you a, a somewhat a similar question, but a little bit altered because uh, you are uh, as people shoot stuff all out of here. As as people may notice, uh, you have a, kind of a double minority status, particularly with the FBI. The FBI did not allow women to be special agents until after the Hoover period, so into the 1970s. So let me ask you that same same question, but let me also ask you kind of something that Mel brought up to a degree is that, you know, his father and then again, others that saw him working at CIA to kind of took them under his wing. Mm -hmm. What mentorship at FBI of minority agents, whether they be women or black American or, or anything else, was that something that was pushed forward? Was that something that was emphasized to try to bring up those that didn't look like the traditional 1950s white Protestant FBI agent? <laughs> Well, okay, that's uh, that's something of a dual dual question. So let me let me just begin by uh, explaining my entrance into the FBI. As Mel indicated, I went to law school. I had a plan, right? I my mother had instilled in me that I was going to become a Supreme Court justice like Thurgood Marshall, and I was going to fight for justice. Um, I had no inclination, no thought, no expectation of ever going into the FBI. So that's. I mean, I think that's very important to note because if I had not been recruited by someone, I would just never have thought about it. I, um, I was in law school. I had an, an incident occurred where I had to meet an FBI agent and that agent must have seen something in me. I was in law school at the time and he continued to work with me and reach out and contact me until just as in male situation, I was actually recruited by a fellow agent and went through the process and came into the FBI. But uh, again, you know, I was headed towards first going in as a US attorney after, after law school and working my way through to get into um, the judicial system. So I think, I think when we look back over my career in the FBI, there, was, there were no diversity plans, there were no um, programs in place that tried to encourage mentorships or programs within the FBI. We just did that naturally. And, and we had a, a tendency at that time where, uh, I guess if you, if you think of, I heard someone once say that um, the, the queen bee syndrome where you know women um, have the crown and so other women turn and frown because this one thinks she's the queen bee. We didn't have that during my reign or, or during my time period in the FBI. We had the women pretty much would come together, support one another because we knew we had a hard way to go. And you always had somebody to fall back to, to support you and encourage you. But on the other hand, none of us would have made it if we didn't have some good old boys there also supporting and pushing and encouraging us and making sure that you know diversity mattered to them to move forward, yeah. So Malcolm. United States military is usually seen, whether it's right or not, I'll talk about that, as, as being a little bit more progressive when it comes to acceptance of uh, racial disparities. I mean, you go kind of the desegregation goes back to the 1940s under Truman, but even before that, there were black people like the Tuskegee Airmen and then, you know, the Buffalo Soldiers and others that were um, certainly heralded by, 
by Americans. Um, but then again, even today, you see the military is still a bit of a, there's some vestiges of the Confederacy. And it's not just about base names, it's about some, you know, good old boys signing up from areas that they have, probably haven't seen a black person before. Let me ask you, because you have a long, and you've talked about this a lot, a long lineage, uh, your, your ancestry, your, your family goes back to every U.S. war ever fought. Did you ever talk to older relatives about their experience with, with race and, and how it compared to yours? And do you think that you had an easier time or do you think that there's still, you know, that, that old, good old boy, Southern, you know, what I saw certainly in the Army, uh, that's still in existence today? That's a good question, and you're right. I, I know I always start all of my conversations with our, my family's military history, which starts in April 1864 and has continued till today. My niece is still on active duty, has been in combat off of Yemen. Um, so nonstop, every Nance, father, son, right down to my knee. So um, it's it's interesting. First, I think it's interesting that we kept staying in the military. <laughs> Because it wasn't it wasn't easy for anybody above me. Uh, my father joined when he was 15 in 1944, so that he could get in the military. He was like six foot one and 15 from Georgia, you know. So he just lied, and they were like, "Okay, well, we we could always use stewards who were six foot one." Uh, and so, you know, he he spent almost 40 years in the Navy, and so I knew that I was going to be going in the Navy, but. That is a different animal as compared to the intelligence branches within the Navy. And I had an eye-opening experience because, yeah, I spoke to my dad and, I, you know, I knew I was going in the Navy. It's just a given, right? My five, my four brothers had all served in the Navy. My dad served in the Navy. Grandfather, granduncle, World War I, uh, you know. My great-great-grandfather, who was in the Civil War, quit the Army, quit the 111th U.S. Color Troops to join riverine naval forces in the Tennessee River Valley. So the Navy, you know, the Navy's always better. But the problem that we had was when I came, is really when I came into the buildings with no windows. And, you know, I, there's a reason there's no windows, right? They don't want transparency about anything, much less the secrets that we're working with. And and I'm I'm I, I'm ready to hear Mel and Daryl's experiences because we all worked in the same type of skiffs, and uh, you know we had very similar operations. And you know I worked at NSA as a as, a, as an intelligence uh, subdivision of NSA, and then subcontracted from NSA out to other A's. So, but. There was a good old boy system in the general armed forces. When I would go to visit ships, uh, go on shore assignments, get assigned with the Marines, you know, um, yeah, you had that early 80s, good old boy, half of them were hillbillies, everybody chewed tobacco um, sort of world. <laughs> but when I got within the boxes, when I got within our skiffs, that was a different animal. And to this day, I, I still have people out there who, you know, we, I call them national security Karens, right? These are people who, uh, who my experience, <laughs> that's that Karen, it's a real thing. My experience doesn't count for spit, no matter how extensive it was, uh, because I was a black guy. And the first time I ever heard 
the phrase reverse racist was when I was in a skiff, when I was in a command and somebody, you know, uh, somebody actually brought that up two years ago uh, where they said, well, the only thing I remember about this guy was that he was a reverse racist and was always filing EEO complaints. No, you guys were racist and I filed the EEO complaints. Everybody <laughs> in our world has this happen to, I met the first black blue angel pilot, right? I, I, I was giving a speech and this guy was in my audience and I literally told the audience, I'm the wrong guy talking. This guy needs to be there. They fired him from the Blue Angels after they said, hey, three years of a black guy, that's enough. I mean, and he filed an EEO complaint. So with that respect, I think that everyone has difficulties, but I think but when you're inside the box, uh, Vince, the military is a different animal, but I'm certain as we speak to others here, once you're inside that windowless building, you know, you have mentors. <laughs> yes. So could, could I could I pause for a second and ask Malcolm, what did um, explain the reverse racist concept again within the skiff? Yeah, that's when anytime you felt that it's 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 simple. When you would file a complaint that you were being mistreated. They just said, well, you're being a reverse racist. You're just being racist to everybody. It's actually wow. now a white supremacist theme, you know, <laughs> calling black people who are demanding their rights reverse racist. I heard a lot of that over the last few weeks. We're going to get to that, Malcolm. Hold that thought. Right. So now that Daryl's landed back on the planet safely, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you a question. I think this, this really will apply to Mel as well. Um, so, Daryl, you worked in Africa extensively, and you were the chief of the African division. And I know how much affinity you have for the countries where you work in Africa as a whole. We've talked about this in the past. But do you feel as though black intelligence officers were guided into these posts versus higher profile regions like Russia or China? Was it, you know, kind of almost you're the you're the black officer, you're gonna be Africa division versus being the head of the SE division or being, you know, sent to China. And I understand that, you know, you want people right. like who can relate to people, but at the same time, do you think there's an inherent dis discrimination there? I wouldn't say it's an inherent discrimination, but it, you know, I personally did not want to be the black guy going to Africa division. I let everybody in the system know that. I had grown up in Okinawa. My father was a, uh, a SIGINT guy in the, in the Air Force. So I'm a second generation intelligence officer. So growing up in Okinawa, serving in Korea as a part of my Air Force experience as an analyst, I was heavily leaning towards East Asia division. Um, and then I met a man named Buana. Now, if you saw Buana, you would think, you know, country guy, Pennsylvania, redneck, but Buana was special. Buana knew more things about the African continent than anything. And I was doing what we call an interim during the training process. And I remember standing pretty close to him during, a, during something where he knew everybody's name. He not only knew the names of his officers, he knew their spouses' names. He knew their kids' names. He knew their pets' names. And it wasn't somebody standing behind him whispering in the ear saying, hey, this is Daryl. No, he knew his people. And Africa Division was the smallest division. I'm, and I saw all the work that was being done. So my mind changed during the process and I ended up loving being in Africa Division and growing up in the system and 
eventually uh, replacing Mel two or three times removed as the chief mm -hmm. of the division. So I didn't feel like I was pushed towards it. In fact, I fought it. Um, but that is the, uh, that's the, that's what people think. Um, but it, it really, it really wasn't the case for me. And there are a lot of white officers out there who are doing amazing things on the continent and doing things and, 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 you know, on the, on the continent and doing it for the right reasons. So I never felt, I never felt typecast. So I could jump in here on this part. Um, you know, I, I took German in high school and, and college. So, so I came out, you know, I was speaking German. Now, you know, the, the, the government never does what is logical. Um, so, you know, they didn't send me to Germany. Uh, and, and it's not just me. Uh, a lot of people, they would come out with a certain language unless you were speaking Arabic. Uh, then, yeah, the Middle East is going to get you. Uh, but but and China and if you speak Chinese, then then China is uh, is probably going to get you. Um, but otherwise, they'll send you in the the exact opposite place. Now, I wanted to go to Africa, uh, and even some of my uh, friends that were much more senior than I, uh, who were black, uh, told me don't go to Africa because that's where they want to send send all blacks. Um, the agency has, has a problem, uh, and I can't say it's unique to them. And one of those problems is that they want, if if a, a, some if a, a Asian American wants to go to China, um, they are, they tend to be reluctant to send them to China. If a mm -hmm. um, if uh, the Hispanics. They all want to send them to uh, South America, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the Hispanics want to go. Eventually, uh, as I rose up in the system, you know, one of the things I, I would tell uh, these individuals is you can't spend all of your time in one particular area. You mm -hmm. have to know the world. So if you do two tours in Latin America and then go off to Europe or, or Africa or the Middle East, um, because we're supposed to be experts, or not not so much experts, but we're supposed to know how the world functions. And it's learning about uh, the diversity of working against uh, various targets. Um, because the key target, uh, speaking frankly, you know, were at that time the Soviet Union, the Chinese, the North Koreans. Uh, these were the people, and you're not, you, you know, you're not going to recruit a North Korean in North Korea. You know, right. there are going to be other other locations. So for me, um, when I went to Africa, all those people were there. And so <laughs> it, it was a, a gold mine in terms of uh, working the, the uh, hard targets, as, as we, we call them. So, so, so Kathy, look, oh, sorry, Malcolm, do you want to jump in? Do you say something or no? make a quick comment about that you know we had that same problem in in the cryptologic world because i come from where daryl's father's from um when i came in in 1980 hispanics were all being reserved for central america uh and, well actually that's not true they were being routed to korean language 
They didn't want them working in their area of operations. Asians would be routed to Spanish. And, uh, you know, since there were only like three of us in the entire world, African-Americans all got put in the Middle East. I started out as a Russian linguist. I took Russian before I uh, came in the Navy. I spoke, took Russian and I took Mandarin Chinese. Mm. And uh, the first thing that happened to me at Defense Language Institute, I had a Russian teacher say, you are not, we don't take your type for this. You go to Arabic. <laughs> Literally dumped. And I could speak the first block of all the Russians. So we we had that sort of weird mix and but we're tunneled when you get into that one world that's where you are forever we'll be right back after this and now a message from cyberbit mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport you build muscle memory through rigorous practice Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. You know, it's very, it's very interesting, Malcolm, that probably one of the top um, female Russian counterintelligence agents I knew in the FBI was a black female, petite, small, you know, and she did very well. She was fluent Russian and she did uh, very well in her role. But I think we all have that problem to some extent, right? And sometimes I, I think um, there's a concern initially that if you look like and speak like and have some commonality with the people you might be more easily turned. And so there's a concern about putting people in those roles initially. And then they realize that that's not necessarily, I think right now you'll see more people of color going into a variety of fields. It doesn't really matter. I don't know why we've always had that notion that white males can do all things and people of color have to be put into special little boxes. For my six years at NSA, uh, as a military guy, my middle name was BGSA, right? Black guy speaks Arabic. Because there were just some places you couldn't send the guys from, you know, some from Utah wow. out to. And it was just like, you're being seconded to another agency or organization. So good luck. Here's your TDY orders. Uh, I, I, I want to I throw this out too, Vince, because I, I think it's very important before time ends for us that we put this statement out. I'm not sure we are, just based upon what we're saying right now, I'm not sure we are recruiting Blacks into the intelligence field right now. Um, maybe not even as much as we used to in the past, but I just feel we're, we're starting to have a huge void in terms of getting Blacks into the fields that all of us previously served in. Right, guys? You, you agree? Well, if, if I may, the... Um... The current head of talent acquisition at the agency is a black woman. Um, they're actively recruiting minorities. They've been going after the HBCUs for 
you know, for many years. I know some directorates within the CIA do better than others. I know there are director of intelligence or a director of analysis, it's switched names since I left, um, are really good and maybe the DO not so much. But um, I was given the honor of speaking at a Thurgood Marshall, as Cassie mentioned Thurgood Marshall earlier when she was talking about wanting to be a you know, Supreme Court justice or her mom wanting her to be a Supreme Court justice. But anyway, uh, the Thurgood Marshall Leadership Institute has an annual conference and it was the first time that the CIA was asked to actually be a speaker. We had been a part of the, you know, the uh, career fairs in the past. And because I was the head of training at the time, um, I was asked by the, uh, by the recruitment center to actually speak to more than 600 HBU students who were at this major affair in New York City. Well, it just happened to be during uh, Hurricane Sandy. And not only was I the keynote speaker, I was stuck in a hotel with uh, 600 of some of the most amazing, uh, diverse, diverse in the terms of where they came from and, you know, from all over. So I opened up speaking in French. And I remember one of the young ladies afterwards said, oh, my God, I, first of all, I never knew that the CIA had black people and that they spoke other languages. And she was just so excited. So I know that the intent is there. Um, I, I had a lot of philosophical differences with Director Brennan, but where we did align was his push towards reaching out to the agency resource groups, whether it was the LBGTQ, Black Executive Board, the DO African American Council. He meant that and he pushed it. It's just the numbers and the agency does not have the best reputation out there because of the place where I live, Hollywood and books and TVs just haven't done a really good job of depicting the real world that I recognize and that I lived. So I understand people's hesitation and reticence for coming to join the FBI or the CIA. But the four of us, the five of us, Vince and the rest of the International Spy Museum folks are here to tell you that there is opportunities out there. And if you have interest in travel, you have interest in discovering other worlds and cultures, there's no better opportunity than the intelligence community. Whether you go the, you know, the DOD route, whether you go the FBI route, or whether you go the, uh, the agency route, and of course there are 13 or 14 other uh, IC members out there, but the opportunity's there and the recruiting effort has to be consistent. If I heard anything from the HBCUs, like you can't come to us just when you need us, you have to invest in us. You have to be there all the time, not just every other year or every third year. I'm going to have to throw out because I think it's very important. I'm often, I often see um, the FBI does this too, just as the agency. They recruit at HBCUs, and you know, not all black people go to HBCUs, and right. I don't, see, I see no effort <laughs> to recruit blacks from other colleges and universities. It's, right. it's almost this concept of, well, I can go and get as many, maximize my black recruitment by going to just a predominantly black place, and that's not the answer for, nope. for what we need. And I will also add, uh, Daryl, that the FBI last year in December celebrated 100 years of its first black FBI agent, uh, a gentleman named James Warmly Jones, and he he was the first agent. He was former military. He was a former police officer. He comes in a hundred years ago now, 
Wow. Right today, the FBI's um, profile of black agents is less than the number of black agents who were in during my t time period. And I have been retired now for a period of, I think, 12, 13 years, right? 14 years ago. So I don't think we're really recruiting blacks into right. these positions. And I think there has to be an improved effort. I know it's very easy to put black diversity individuals in these positions, but that's not the answer. We're not getting there. We're not making a difference. And we've got to see something better than what I'm seeing today. I'll tell you where I see I, I Daryl and, and Melvin will love this because I do more recruiting for the CIA than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I had guys who were who were with me in, in the cryptologic field, top secret SCI plus 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 cleared native Arabic speakers. And I remember one guy uh, when he made chief, I was like, you're in the wrong agency. You're just in the wrong, the wrong field. You should be a paramilitary officer, you know, or, or you know, you're just you you really should expand beyond thinking I'm gonna get my paycheck on the 15th and the first on the 15th and the first of every month. The military is full of people that the, the FBI, the FBI should have a recruiting pipeline that comes straight from military police. Absolutely. Um, they should should be stealing DIA and, and uh NGAs, you know, African American, you know, careerist as they come up. But a lot of people don't even see these guys. I know, um, you know, I, I just by the nature of where I was at, I bumped into you know your people all the time, or I was assigned with those guys. So, and the few guys that I did see were, you know, like the, like I said in the in the DO, uh, were ex Delta guys, ex Rangers, the one seal, you know, and I just kept thinking, why aren't they just grabbing the hundreds of people? Who are in the who are in the army, Air Force? You could take an Air Force SIG in or make them a human. Or I know I've done the leap. So you know, send them that way. Yeah. Not really recruiting. I mean, I, I think um, there's this expectation that everyone should follow the same way of you know, just put your paper in and they just get lost in the system. I've known. Um, I know a young man who is in. Arabic speaker, Spanish speaker, fluent in both, served in special ops, um, um, psychological operations. I referred the person to someone in the FBI, a recruiter in one of the offices, and they never followed through. Yeah. So, you know, recruitment is more than just expecting people to fill out paperwork at a function, and now you've got your big cadre of folks. Their recruitment is wanting somebody and making them feel like they're wanted. I managed. I managed uh, my my last year um, uh, before I was trying to retire. Jose Rodriguez, who's the head of the, uh, it was the DDO at the time, asked me to take the job uh, to manage the recruitment center for the yep. DDO, and uh, and and I did, and I was just shocked at the whole system, the way it was set up. First of all, um, the people there. Uh, and I'm being critical, uh, the people there were not, um, there were some very good officers and then there were people that were dumped there because they didn't have any place to go. Now, these are people that are supposed to go out and recruit other people. Uh, they, they, so their, their perception of that was, was 
to go to the Ivy League schools, uh, anyone with a 3.0. Uh, and so they weren't looking at the people. They weren't looking at um, their, their common sense or these issues. They, they were looking at the bookworms. So I had to change a lot of that. And trust me, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was a fight. And some people I, I sent out, I mean, they claim I fired them. I didn't fire them. I sent them off to other places. But our recruitment section is, is screwed up. Uh, and so, and the people that come in, uh, we recruit people that come in that get through the security process are uh, people that are looking for people like them. So if you don't have Asians or Hispanics or, or Arabs or Iranians or Blacks, um, you're gonna get predominantly uh, just white, white people that, that are coming in uh, mm -hmm. and, and get through the security system. Uh, as you say, Cass, it's not just the uh, historically black colleges, it's, it's all over and you need people that are, um, that are, are white, that want to go and be able to recruit blacks and and others, right. and not just go to uh, the Ivy League schools and talk to just white people. You got to have people that want to go in and do it. And and so the problem is is much larger than than just uh, going out recruiting and trying to get people in. Mm -hmm. Daryl, let me jump in because I want to actually I want to broaden the focus a little bit because I think that there's a an important question. This is not just for you, Daryl. This can be anyone, but I'm going to start. Okay. John F. Kennedy famously said, to try to draw a line between domestic and foreign policy is like trying to draw a line through water. And a lot of the civil rights gains of the 1960s were due to worries about the perception of America abroad, mm -hmm. where people on their TVs around the world were seeing dogs being sicked on young black girls or fire hoses. I wonder today how much does a domestic situation in the United States affect your ability to recruit people overseas? You know, I always saw, people ask me what I did and I said, I sell the American dream. And selling the American dream to people who believe, who still have hope, who are still lining up for the opportunity to come to the United States, it's not a hard, it's not a hard sell. Um, I think, the message of, of hope is, you know, hope is not a plan, but hope is something to actually look forward to and, and strive towards. Honestly, I would use this as a case officer in the field, whether you're, you know, you're a journeyman just walking in the door or whether you're the station chief, you can always spin what's going on as in a positive. And most people who are inclined to do what we do, whether it's for money or a sense of adventure or to right some wrong, do it because it boils down to trust. And even when the system was not fair, even if the system still isn't fair today, they still look across and see, oh, this is a black guy who has made it into this organization. There's hope there. There's a possibility that what he's saying, that this, this dream that our founding fathers have uh, come up with is something that they're still striving towards. I'm not looking at these little pockets of folks that are across the nation that are taking advantage of a movement and, and, and causing chaos. And it's interesting that Antifa and the Aryans, completely different diametrically opposed views, all have the same goal right now. 
So they're teaming up. And model people see that as a negative, but I see that as an opportunity to change and actually meet and live up to the to the creed that our founding fathers lived by. And it's taken hundreds of years, but it takes time for things to get done. I see nothing but positive from all of this. I had to move to Santa Monica to see looting from my, literally from the balcony that I'm looking at. And I lived in some rough places, but to see Santa Monica smoke from cars being burned and glass on the street the next day was, it's startling. And I lived in Pakistan. I lived, I spent time in Burundi. I spent time on a lot of nasty places and had to move to Southern California to see rioting up close and personal. It was, it was bizarre, but I still see opportunity in all of events. Vince, if I could just make a quick comment, because I think you, if you're talking about assets, I bought back three of my interpreters to the United States, and they're all U.S. citizens now, and, and very successful. And I remember one of them said to me, a guy who worked very closely with me, we worked a lot of operations uh, where, you know, I was the only American, and I had all Iraqis, all Iraqis, 250 Iraqis. And he says, Chief, he says, Chief, I've been given an opportunity to bring my child who has a, a medical condition to either Mumbai or Louisville, Kentucky. And he said, what do you think, Chief? Whatever you say, I'll do it. And I'm like, Louisville, Kentucky. And he says, do they have a children's hospital there? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, I pitched it. And, and I said to him, you know, you're, you'll become an American citizen. You'll be part of this big this big process and they voted it for the first time in 2016 unfortunately uh but they're very proud americans and it was just easy no matter what was going on i mean bush was you know they all hated george w bush at the time and they were in a baghdad that was being devastated and so long as they trusted me you know they could right. they, they got it. And now they all run businesses and i'm the loser i'm on tv <laughs> Let me, let me, we're going to go to the, the audience in, in one moment. Let me ask a final question. And, and I, again, point this to you, Daryl, but this is not going to be just a sole Daryl question. And it's a little bit more esoteric. I'm looking at U.S. policy, foreign policy overall. Because I know that you went to Somalia right after Task Force Ranger, which is the right. famous or infamous Block Hawk Down incident. And then a couple of years later, there were genocides in Rwanda and in Darfur. Mm -hmm. I was involved. Uh, with the United States military taking care of a genocide in Bosnia, but we actually went in, right? The UN and NATO and the United States sent tens of thousands of troops to Europe when people were massacring other people, but sat back when the Tutsis and the Hutus were chopping each other's arms off and, and right. Darfur, where tens if not hundreds of thousands of Africans were being killed. Was there ever a time, and this is across the board, again, Daryl, as I know directly, uh, you were there at the time, was there ever a problem that you found with American policy and being able to do jobs because of the clear ignorance and disrespect and complete, in some cases, not caring one bit about what was going on in the African continent of broader American foreign policy? Well, the Somalia and Bosnia, well, actually, Bosnia and, and the, uh, the Hutu Tutsis were kind of at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Dayton Accords came out of that. Um, 
Shake Hands with the Devil, I believe it was, it was a book written by, I think, the Canadian commander, and every the, the world dropped the Romeo Dallaire. I, 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 never, I never felt like it was, listen, Africa is always going to be a battleground, whether it was 59 to 61, where all the nations were gaining independence, and it was either you go the way of the Russians, or you go the way of the Americans, that same dichotomy is going on right now. And that's why people are interested in Africa. And I think they're missing the point. Some of the, the strongest economies over the last decade have been on the African continent. There's so much potential there beyond the natural resources that are being, you know, being pulled out of uh, out of different nations. But they definitely dropped the ball on that. And did it have to do with the fact that there are people of color? Um, yeah. I mean, it it is what it is. And, and it's not just on the African continent. It's in the Southwest Asia whether it's Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan theater, black and brown peoples across the world throughout history have always had to face the same things that are going on in the same world, at, at the world at the same time. But our struggles are different and our struggles are, um, they're more. And it's just something that we accept that it is. And, and the four of us have been able to overcome and hopefully we're all reaching back and pulling up pulling up folks, but I, I, I think I answered your question. I didn't see it as an agency officer being sent to Burundi or being sent to Mogadishu as, you know, you're going because you're a black guy and, you know, we need black people and, you know, to be able to do this. It was, here's the mission and you're qualified to do it and we're going to, we're going to send you. Vince, real quick. Um, I was involved in those missions in a way that I can't discuss, but you know, when when Rwanda happened, I was in charge of the division in uh, that was responsible for a data, you know, database and collection for Sub-Saharan Africa uh, out of Spain. And you know how we got told or how we found out about the genocide? There was a tiny little column in the International Herald Tribune that day that said, you know, armed men, you know, killing thousands. And I actually reached out to the the Africa or what we call the ALO division, all others, <laughs> you know, because there's Russia, China, you know, and Africa was considered all O, all others, um, to say, hey, um, do you have any collection pri priorities that we can do for Rwanda? And they were like, well, what do you have? And I go, what do you mean? What do you have? You're at <laughs> And he was like, well, we don't do anything down there and then it was special operations command that reached out to us because they were doing a non-combatant evacuation out of the american embassy and they were like well nsa told us that you guys have this and i was like oh, holy cow i gotta find two french linguists and it was insane everything south of morocco was non-existent to them apart from executive outcomes and the nuclear program you know i'm not i'm not portraying anything but south africa there was nothing in between Morocco and South Africa as far as their collection priorities concerned. Then Somalia happened, and like you, I got sent to Bosnia-Herzegovina. I got sent to Croatia and, and Sarajevo, which is where a black Arabic-speaking cryptologic language should be. Bizarre. <laughs> All right, Amanda, let's let the audience get in on this because I think that there's probably a ton of questions out there that people may have or have been sending in. I keep seeing the chat thing going off, so I know there's lots of questions coming in. 
It is. And we're going to disappoint people. I'm going to say that right now because there are so many questions, but we will try to forward them on to our wonderful speakers. Um, I'll start with something a little bit different. Um, what do you think about the uh, president's dismissive, dismissive and critical attitude toward the intelligence agencies today? I was going to start that. <laughs> I think about this. Go for it, Daryl. Well, I'll, I'll start. I'll start. Thank you, Mel. I'll finish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, um, historically, I mean, I've been around, I, I, I almost hate to admit it, but, I, you know, I've been around since Johnson. And uh, each, each president, uh, um, has a different attitude towards the intelligence agency and intelligence matters. Some of it uh, are preconceived ideas that are wrong, like, you know, because they're coming from the private sector and they don't know about intelligence. Uh, so I, I don't want to say I'm defending them, but I, I remember, uh, you know, Clinton, for example, Clinton uh, thought he knew it all and, and he was an avid reader of the intelligence, but he didn't like the briefings as, as much. Uh, so uh, some, there were some presidents that liked to read the material, and then there were others that, that liked to, to um, um, be briefed on it. And then uh, some just only wanted uh, specific information that was, and that the uh, briefers learned quickly who, um, what they liked and what they were interested in. But they would also make sure that the rest of that information uh, was given to the appropriate people so that if the uh, Treasury Secretary needed to, to uh, bring something to the attention of the president, they, they, would, they would take care of it. Um, I'm not going to comment on Trump. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll catch up for you. It's not because I don't want to, but I'll take an hour to do it. So, right. I think the one thing I would have to throw out is I'm pretty concerned about it personally. Um, I, I just see that when you have a dismissive attitude about um, the importance of intelligence, both within the agencies within the US, like the FBI, and I think just recently I saw where FBI agents were asked to do a policing type of activity with protesters in Washington, D.C. Did you guys see that story? Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, they end up having they end up taking the knee when protesters pursued them. Or they, these are not individuals who are trained to handle police type activity for something like that. And you probably had quite a few counterintelligence agents in that group who are responsible for doing far different type of work. But when there's a dismissive attitude about the importance of the work that they do in the intelligence field, and our State Department is not supported and given the strength and expectations, we're living in a global society. And if we're not a part of that global society and supporting it in the ways and continuing to develop the intelligence and, and understand what our role is, I think we're going to find ourselves in a very frightening position a few years from now. I don't think we can ever be dismissive about um, our intelligence function ever. Um, that kind of leads into this question. 
as black intelligence officers, how do you grapple with promoting and securing American interests abroad when we're currently struggling to ensure them for our own citizens at home? We sort of touched on that a little earlier. You know, the American promise is a promise. And, and I think that we're, we have these periods in history where we go two steps forward, five steps back, but it's still forward. You know, granted, we have a lot of challenges now, and I think that it's it's still a good asset to, you know, it's still a, a good tool to recruit with. I mean, you know, I mean, you can have a falafel, you can, you can have nothing in Baghdad and a falafel stand in Portland, Oregon, if, if, if you play your cards right. Um, and it's a very powerful draw. Mm -hmm. And, and also uh, people, I mean, just just as uh, Malcolm said, um, people are patient. You know, they'll look at this period and say, "Okay, do we have to wait till 2020, and then let's right. see what happens? What what are the Americans going to do?" You know, some people are probably looking at Biden, hoping that he'll be elected, and then they just sort of uh, step back. And not that they're anti-American. If this went on for 10 years or 15 years, I'd say we'd have a problem. But I, right. people are smarter than, than we give them credit for sometimes on these foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they've been through it. Uh, uh, I, just one more thing. I, I remember meeting with the Egyptian, uh, the head of the Egyptian uh, Intel Service. Uh, and and he, he he had been in that position for 30 years. So he had seen directors come and directors go at the agency. Mm -hmm. And he could tell me more about the directors than I knew. Uh, so those, what I call the old dogs or old veterans, uh, they're giving the advice and say, let's just wait this out and see what happens. So, so I'm, I'm not as worried as, as others have said at, at this point. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think this this is a very interesting question. Um, what are ways to help African American communities understand that Intel work today is not COINTELPRO 2.0? And I love that the questioner said you may need to explain COINTELPRO, uh, which was the FBI program. Uh, looking at, at individuals and different movements that um, perhaps they felt was anti-government. So I don't know, what do you think, Cassie? You're the FBI. I laughed, I laughed a little bit when you asked that question because um, you know, part of my family were very strong members of the Black Panther Party. And so when I entered the FBI, there was a lot of concern about what are you doing? Yeah. And one of the things that, that I commented to members of my family, and I truly believe in my heart, and, and I hope those who are listening will understand, you can't ever really make change of anything that needs to be changed unless you get in there and you change it, right? And so having Blacks in the FBI is the only way to ensure you don't have another COINTELPRO. I mean, you've got to get in and be a part of the programs, the policies, um, the training, everything that's required to be a special agent. And I do believe it's important to go into the intelligence field because we do make the difference. You can't continue to have things come in the same way that it's always been. I just spent two weeks in Kenya, um, I think it was in September of last year, 
And when I met with the Kenya people, and I was with a group of many other folks of other nationalities, but they loved and adored me. And we had a wonderful time. It was just like being home with family. You know, we, we ate together. I, I went to little places in the mountains that was like what my little rural town in Louisiana used to be like. And, we, and it was getting back to having family. So it is important to me, and I would encourage African-Americans and Blacks, those of us who don't like to be called African-Americans, to move into these agencies and in the intelligence role and the FBI because you can make a difference. And it's so important for someone just like you to be a part of all of these things. Right. Um, I'm going to combine two people's questions as best I can. Um, one was someone who um, was, um, I believe, trained by you, Daryl, at the Helm Center, told to use differences to enhance tradecraft. And somehow I feel, and how did that help you be a better spy? And I feel that kind of works um, in conjunction with another person's question about how um, did your perspective for everyone um, as a Black person, um, how did that impact the work you were doing? And um, were your perspectives differently and how welcomed um, were your different perspectives from your colleagues? So I, I used to always, when I, when I was asked to come and, and be the number two at the training school, there was an unfortunate uh, five of seven or seven of nine black officers didn't actually make it through. So one of the things they looked at was, is the course bias? Is it this? Is it that? And I said, that's a question I can't answer. I don't know those students. I don't know how they were hired. I don't know what, whether they were the right fit. There are so many unknowns there. I can proudly say that 19 of 21 made it through what I went through. And yeah, I kept the numbers because that's what I did. But all of them had strengths that their other peers didn't have. And I said, you need to tap into that. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many times someone in a foreign field who is, you know, whether you're going after a hard target or Russian or Chinese, you know that they have racist inclinations in their, you know, in their cultures. But Russian and Chinese racism is no different than American racism. Racism, racism. But once you can break through that difference, that obvious skin, you know, melatonin difference between whoever it is you're engaging and you connect with someone because you enjoy art or you enjoy music or you enjoy the outdoors, you enjoy, you know, certain foods or whatever it happens to be. And that's what I would tell them to focus on. Whatever it is unique to you is why we hired you which is why we want you to bring that to. We don't want you to become cookie cutter. We want you to take the best of who you are and use that however you can, based on the training and the morals and the ethics that we're teaching to pull that person in. That person who might not ever otherwise have ever engaged an American, much less you know a, a black American, and you can use that to your advantage. And I saw it all the time. I always saw my race as more of a, of a uh, force multiplier than a negative because they're curious. The assets you're engaging, well, why would you from, you know, this country that has put you down and, you know, stepped on you, why would you fight for them? Well, I carry a constitution around with me everywhere because there are people quoting the U.S. Constitution who have no idea what they're talking about. And what I'm seeing now is there are a lot of Americans who don't understand what the constitution is. So I'm, I don't know if I'm a constitutionalist or whatever, 
but I believe in it. It's kind of my framework and it's what I use to kind of level the playing field. So that's, that's my, my, my spin on that. Did I answer that question? And I, the, um, M MC was the initials of the young lady that trained for me. Can you see her? Can you see her name? I have done away with the question because I have sorting no through worries. like 100 no questions. You'll see it. We will send these questions to you. <laughs> okay. Malcolm, what were you gonna? I was gonna say from from our perspective that from the military side, the thing that I've I've felt because you know even though I started out in SIGINT, you know sometimes you need a black guy. Um, I would, when I went on the ground, 99% of the time, it was my, the thing that I learned when I was a kid in Philadelphia, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood with poor white Irish Catholic people all around me, uh, with just starting to be interspersed with poor black Catholics in an Episcopalian neighborhood, right? Uh, <laughs> the geographic area, rich Episcopalians. And I wanted to know more about everyone else of all of those groups. I wanted to know what that dang tent was for, you know, at Passover. I wanted to know why you were eating matzo balls. I wanted to know, you know, from the Irish, why they spoke sort of this crazy different language. And it was that curiosity that when I went overseas, um, I'll tell you one incident that occurred in a central Mediterranean country where I was on the ground as opposed to on a ship or submarine. I said, um, this operation was going on and the guy who was in charge said, I don't want any Americans here. I don't want any Americans. He goes, you can stay. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um, as far as you're concerned, I'm a, I'm a bro. But <laughs> they do these attitudes that we bring with us based on, how can I put it, a sort of subliminal you know, uh, superiority that we're the Americans, we come in, we blow up stuff, we knock down things. And if you're there, and you're like, let's, let's go out, we're having go for lunch. Can I kill it? Um, can I, you know, how do you make kebabs? Then you come in and you meet their family, you meet their kids, and you are a draw for them. Um, one, one last quick aside. Um, I met the last guy that Osama bin Laden talked to. He was an imam in a little village down from Tora Bora, and no one talked to him. None of the, the previous people that had gone up there had spoken to him, because they said, he's just some imam in a small village. And he's like, yeah, but this guy was like the key to a boatload of information. You know, I had the same tea, drank from the same cup and everything. Exactly. And it's just like, you've got to be interested in them. I could pray yes. with them. I could read the Quran. And he's exactly. he's pleasure was me reading the Quran in Arabic to him. And then you, you can ask him anything you want. People need yeah. to want to express that inner curiosity of foreign cultures. And mm -hmm. then you've got friends for life, if not, you know, what you need. Okay, folks, we are, we're running over, but I'm going to ask one last very current eventy thing, because lots of, lots of our questions are very personal, and I know you guys are probably going to help these folks out, but I'm just putting the pressure on on screen. It's about jobs and recruitment. It's very cool. But um, that's the answer. Huh? The answer to all their questions about recruitment is erase your Facebook account. Thank you. Thank you. That is a good, amazing tip. <laughs>
I don't have one. All right, so this is, uh, I thought, um, great uh, question about current affairs. General Goldfein, and if I mispronounce it, I'm sorry, stated yesterday that the Air Force has to do more to promote diversity in the Air Force. Does the panel think that all intelligence directors should vocalize the same claims so that their organization knows where management stands? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's unfortunate when we make statements like that and we don't show action behind it. So Thank let you. me just add, right. yes, it's very important to say these things, but please let's show you action behind it. That's and for that, corporations, yeah. that's for agencies, that's for the military, that's for everywhere across America. Let's not just say we want diversity, let's make diversity happen. I agree 100%. And that, that was what where, why I was pausing because, you know, we hear a lot of statements, but the mm -hmm. action needs to be uh, done at this point. And this is what the people are demonstrating about now you know, out in the street about the uh, police. It's, it, we all talk about it and we've seen it over the past 20 years. Now's the time you show us something, so. You know, um, I think that to put an end to this, uh, equal opportunity is just that. You need to give, you need to be ready to give opportunity. And we, we can, the military is technically more meritocracy, you know, merit-based. I took every mission for 20 years that I could, every mission. Uh, and you know, enjoyed enjoyed the heck out of it when I had people literally refuse to go to wars, literally <laughs> refuse. But the best EEO speech I ever heard came from a uh, this six foot guy, burly, bright red haired Irish chief of a boat on an atomic submarine uh, on a mission where I needed to borrow his boat. And he had two young sailors in front of him and he said, Okay, I got to sign off for your, e your equal opportunity qualifications. And he said, you, you're black. You, you're white. He goes, I'm chief of the boat. And if I hear anything between the two of you about race, I will squash you like a bug. <laughs> I thought, this is the single greatest leadership I have <laughs> ever seen in my 20-year career of the Navy. Because he was serious. He will squash them like a bug. And that's what leadership needs to show, is that we've got a mission to do. Can we get about it? Yeah. Yep. Well, um, it was MC, Daryl. She let me know. <laughs> she, she, uh, just text, she just texted me as well. <laughs> all right. Any final words you want to say? Um, as I said, I'll, we'll share the questions with y'all if you want to follow up. Really, thing I, I really would like to make sure and emphasize, uh, Amanda and guys, is that diversity matters and it cannot be talked about. It has to be delivered. And the only way it's going to matter is if you get to know people who don't look like you and feel good about it and encouraged about it and bring them into your life, um, in your world and be a champion for justice, please. That's the only way we will ever change anything anywhere, please. If if, if I can quickly, when I was um, when I was about to become chief of Africa Division, the uh, the annual COS conference was going on at the time. So the handover from my predecessor to me, I had the opportunity to address all the station chiefs in one fell swoop. And the speech that I came up with was 
failure is an option. So my deputy, of course, like boss, your first speech to the troops can't be failure is an option. And I said, mm -hmm. for you, and he was a white male whose background was in Moscow, he was a fantastic officer, had done a tour in Africa. And I said, my point is, the opportunity to fail doesn't mean I want you to fail. I want you to go out there and push and push and push and don't be concerned about failure because if you fail under me, I will take the arrow and you will be able to, to move on. And as a black man, if you fail, or as a woman, if you fail, the next time they're gonna look, they're gonna maybe be a little hesitant, but no white male has ever had to, had to worry about other white males not being able to follow in their footsteps if they didn't live up to whatever the task is. And that's what me, and it's, some of the pressure is self, is self uh, you know, brought on by, but it's also society. So failure, to, the, uh, the option is to fail, is not, I want you to go out there to fail, but I don't want you to worry about it. And if you're not pushing hard enough to the point that you might fail, then you're not doing what the agency is putting you out there for. If you wanna just do the easy, you know, the easy nine to five thing, you can do that, but we need above and beyond. And if you have to ask what above and beyond looks like, you're not doing it. Mm. That is so powerful to think all that resting on your shoulders. So I, I want to think. got big shoulders. Big shoulders. And now they're the right side up for all of us. So I want to thank you all for your candor and for being here and for being supporters of the Spy Museum. But I hope you'll come back. Um, I hope you'll visit the museum if you can. And if you'd like to support us, we are always willing for you to join our mission resilience campaign. So it's a tough time for everybody, but um, it's wonderful to see this gang here. So thanks everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.